The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. Well, hello, City Rev. It's so good to be with you this weekend. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And wherever you're at, wherever you may be listening or watching, so glad that you are. And just want to say, if it's your first time with us, or maybe you've been watching for some time while we've been digital uh, in this season, I want to invite you to do our Get Connected card. Uh, Right there in the notes tab in our church online platform, you can find our Get Connected card. It's an online uh, form. They'll take you a few seconds just to fill out. That helps us get to know you and to know that you are more than an IP address. You're more than a random figure. You're not a number. You're a person, and we want to get to know you. So we'd love for you to fill that out. Also, some of our hosts will be posting the link to that Get Connected form on our chats. Uh, And so we'd love for you to do that. It is Independence Day weekend. And so hopefully you're getting some time with family, some time for some tasty food. Uh, But we actually released a podcast in light of Independence Day weekend talking about the topic of patriotism and what is a biblical Christian view of this idea of patriotism. And would love for you to check that out on our City Rev Life podcast. You can find that wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, But check that out, City Rev Life podcast. It'll be very, very helpful to you as you uh, observe and remember, reflect on Independence Day and all that that means. So I'm going to start our time of Bible study here, praying for our time in God's Word, and also taking a cue this weekend, on this particular weekend, to pray for our nation. So would you join me in prayer as we prepare to begin our time of Bible study? Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, first and foremost, for your grace towards us. Father, thank you that you love us. And Father, this weekend, we just reflect on the simple truth that we have the freedom to do what we're doing right now, to open up your word without fear of persecution or judgment. Lord, we remember brothers and sisters in Christ across the world that that's not their reality. And so, Lord, we we don't want to miss the blessing, the, the freedom, the liberty that we have to proclaim this truth to reveal Jesus without fear of someone coming and knocking on our door in some way. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the men and women who have fought, who have served to see to it that we can gather, that we can worship you freely, that we can talk about you. Lord, I I pray right now for our leaders. I pray for our mayors and governors. Lord, I pray for uh, those who are in our House of Representatives, in the Senate, in the White House, Father. Lord, that you would do a massive move of your spirit, Lord. Or those who are far off would be drawn near by the blood of Jesus. That there would be this spirit of humility and wisdom that sweeps through the leadership of our nation. Unlike we could ever even imagine. Father, we need you. If there is ever a time where we needed you, it's now, Lord. And so, Lord, would you shed your grace. Shed your mercy on our land. May justice roll down like waters. And let freedom ring. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start our time of Bible study by asking you a question. I want you to think about for a moment, what is your ideal food pairing? Now, the reason I ask this is that sometimes there's different types of foods that are wonderful by themselves. You enjoy them by themselves. 
but there's something quite magical that happens when you bring them together. And I have one such pairing here with me that I want to share with you. And so I'm going to go ahead and take this out. You might already know where I'm going with this. But this right here is a tostada. This is Cuban bread with butter. And uh, this is just quite amazing uh, in its own right. It's, it's incredible. But not only that, but I also have uh, cafe con leche right here. This is espresso with some milk and uh, a good amount of sugar. And uh, see, these two things on their own are amazing and are worth really just celebrating and being thankful to God for, for these two gifts. But there's something special that happens when these two are paired together. And I was taught from a young age that there is a way to eat this. In fact, if you go to like a Cuban bakery, they'll often slice the Cuban bread that's been pressed down into these thin strips. And you might wonder, why do they do that? Well, here's why. So you can take it and dip it and bite it just like that. And that right there is a whole other level of wonder and joy. And you just have to try that at some point in the coming weeks. I mean, it's just an amazing thing. And so I want you to think about what are your pears as I finish this bite. You know, it's really hard to communicate while enjoying this deliciousness. But I want you to think about those pears. There are some things in life that are wonderful in themselves, but you put them together and then they become something altogether better, more. So here's what we're doing in this series. We're in a series looking at the life of Gideon. The series is called Take Courage. This is part three of our series. If you haven't been able to watch the previous messages, I encourage you to check them out. But we're looking at Gideon's story in the book of Judges. And when we read his story, there are really, there's this pair that comes to the surface. These two ideas that are essential to our faith that in their own right are important, in their own right are beautiful and wonderful. But when they come together, they do something incredible. And through Gideon's story, we see really the intersection of faith and courage. God calls Gideon to a life of faithful courage, where in spite of opposition and fears all around him, God is calling him to move forward in obedience with courage. And Gideon, time and time again, we're going to read throughout as we go through his story, these moments where God is calling him to step out into a situation where he's confronted with enemies, where he has so much to be afraid of, and God is calling him to a life of courage. This is a season where we need some courage. There are fears all around us. You may personally be dealing with a fear. You may have a family member who's dealing with something right in front of them that's reason for fear, and we need courage in this moment. And really, this passage is going to show us the way. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6. I want to invite you to open there with me in your Bible. Judges chapter 6. Let me catch you up to where we're at in this story. Uh, Gideon was uh, someone who was in the nation of Israel. He was called by God, we find out earlier in chapter 6, to deliver the nation of Israel from their ancient enemy, from the enemy that at that time was oppressing them. They had been oppressing them for seven years, the nation of Midian. And the way that Midian had been oppressing Israel is they had been robbing them. They came and they would steal their harvest. They'd steal their livestock. And so Israel is being just totally destroyed and taken over financially. They're in an economic crisis in Israel. And so God raises up this judge named Gideon. He calls him out. And Gideon, really this unlikely hero who's the least in all his family and the smallest clan in his tribe, Gideon is called by God to go and deliver the people 
from their enemy Midian. And so this dramatic encounter happens where the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and calls Gideon. And Gideon realizes that he just saw face to face the Lord. And it's really incredible. It's what we talked about this past week. But then right after, there's this really, really interesting turn of events. Just after God says to Gideon, you're going to stand as one man to deliver my people from, my, from that enemy Midian. The first thing God tells Gideon to do is something that you might not expect him to do if the overall goal is to attack an enemy nation. Because first and foremost, God is going to call Gideon to deal with an enemy within. I want you to look with me here in a moment at Judges chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 25. Let me give you a roadmap for where we're going. We're going to talk through God's invitation to courage, that he gives us this invitation to courage. Then afterwards, we're going to talk about our struggle with courage. And then we're going to talk about how God has a path to courage. And so that's going to, over, that's going to give us our overview for the way we're going to look at this passage. And so first, let's look at God's invitation to courage in verses 25 and 26. Look at what God's word says. It says, That night... The Lord said to Gideon, to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. In these few verses, we find out about God's invitation to courage. That first and foremost, God calls his people to a life of faithful courage. Now, when we look at the details of these few verses, it's important to note, remember, Gideon's going to go lead this nation, Israel, against the enemy Midian that's been plundering them. But before he does that, God says, there's an enemy in your town. In fact, there's an enemy in your father's house. On the land that he owns, there's this, there's this altar to Baal, this Canaanite storm god that represented fertility and that represented wealth and uh, in an agrarian society producing a, a, a large harvest. And then an Asherah, a shrine to Asherah, an Asherah pole. Asherah was a goddess in that time that the surrounding nations... They worshiped this goddess again as this goddess of fertility. That if they worshiped this goddess, that they would be blessed by this god. And receive large harvests. And their women would have many children. That was their understanding. And what had taken place in Israel. Is the, the people of Israel had started worshiping these other gods. Started worshiping Baal. Now another thing that's important to note about Baal. Baal is... Not just a God that's uh, in, that pa in, in paganism reserved for one nation, but many of the surrounding nations around Israel. All these different people groups around them. Many of them worshipped Baal in some form. And so he was really an overarching. He was a big deal for that time period. People worshipped him. And just mind you, think about it. He promised to offer wealth. He promised to offer prosperity, power, fertility. And so all these different surrounding nations worship Baal. And so Israel gets sucked into that. And they start worshiping the Baals. And if you noticed, the location of this particular altar is significant. The person that God just chose to lead the people of Israel against their enemy Midian that worships Baal. 
the Midianites who serve Baal. The person that he chose to lead them is the person whose father is the sponsor for the whole town's altar to Baal. So God says to Gideon, I want you, Gideon, to tear down the altar to Baal that your father sponsored that's on his land. And I want you to take your father's bulls, one that's seven years old. This would have been an older bull. Usually uh, bulls were either used for food or for sacrifices earlier than that. So the fact that this is a seven-year-old bull, this was a costly sacrifice. An entire bull he sacrifices to, not to Baal, but to the Lord. The Lord instructs Gideon. He says, I want you to build an altar to me on that stronghold. It's this picture of God reclaiming his people. Tear down the idols and replace it with an altar to me and offer a sacrifice, an extravagant sacrifice to me. So Gideon is called to do this courageous act. And as we think about what's happening here and maybe... Our, our world is so different than the world we're reading about. I mean, not just in, in terms of how much time has gone by, but the whole idea of an agrarian society that makes their wealth off the land. The idea of, of a society that worships all these idols. Like, what, what does this tell us about the spiritual condition of Israel? Well, here's what it tells us. We know from earlier in this chapter that Gideon knew about the God of the Bible. Gideon's father clearly has taught him about the Lord. And the reason we know that is Gideon talks about the Exodus. He talks about their story, about how God delivered them. So Gideon clearly knew. And Gideon's father clearly knows about the Lord. So it's not that the people of Israel have just completely outright rejected God, say we don't believe in him anymore. We don't don't think he's real anymore. We really believe in this God over here. No, they're trying to have it both ways. They're trying to serve the Lord while also serving Baal and Asherah. They're trying to worship the Lord while at the same time worshiping these other idols. And this syncretism that's happening here where they're blending these two things together, this happens all throughout the Old Testament. This is an indicator to us of their spiritual condition And God is calling Gideon to tear that down. And and as people living in the 21st century, we kind of scratch our heads and think, that just sounds egregious. How could they do that? How could you claim to follow the Lord, to have that heritage of faith? How could you claim that and then serve these, these idols and have these giant shrines that you worship before? That doesn't even make sense. But is it really all that hard for us to believe? that God's people would be tempted by these idols that promise to offer them wealth, prosperity, that promise to offer them power? Is it hard for us to imagine a world where people who say they follow God to be lured and sucked into worshiping these other idols that say, if you offer yourself to me, they promise that they will bring you true joy. They'll bring you what you're really looking for. Is that really hard for us to imagine? See, just like them, we are surrounded in a world that is full of idols. The, the idols are in the town. They're on the land. 
And there's this temptation even in our own lives to try and have it both ways where we serve the Lord, yes, but at the same time, we're really pursuing power. We're really pursuing success. What we really prioritize is wealth. What we really prioritize is some measure of notoriety, whatever it is. And spiritual courage, courage that flows from faith, looks like swimming against that current. And having this willingness to go against and seeing the idols all around us, all throughout the town and the land, and saying, as for me, I'm going to serve the Lord. And so before Gideon can go on and face the Midianites, before a battle line is drawn and a sword is lifted up, God says to Gideon, I want you first to show courage by taking down the altar in your father's house. That's set up to Baal. That's set up to worship a God who isn't real. Because Gideon, that's where the first battle line must be drawn. You see, faith and courage, they're really friends. They function together. Courage depends on faith. We have to trust in God. We have to believe God. And at the same time, faith, if it's to grow, is going to require courage. The only way for faith to grow is for faith to be tested. These moments where in spite of fears and doubts, we move forward trusting in God's word and his promise. So first we need to know God invites us into courage. Now, the second uh, division of this passage, it shows us our struggle with courage. I want to show you in verse 27, Gideon's struggle with courage and how we can relate. Look at what happens. Verse 27, it says, So Gideon took ten men of his servants... And he did as the Lord had told him. Now, it would be wonderful if that verse ended there, but it doesn't. It says this, But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Now, the author of the book of Judges, inspired by the Holy Spirit to document God's interactions and dealings with his people and with these judges in particular, The author includes this detail and window into Gideon's motivations, into Gideon's mind and thoughts. And he gets down deep and and makes us to see that underneath Gideon's obedience to the Lord, he goes on and does what God called him to do. But underneath that is this fear. So Gideon tries to choose this halfway type of courage, a courage middle ground, a compromise version of courage where he says, okay, I'll I'll do what God has called me to do so long as no one can see me. I'll be faithful to the Lord. I'll I'll choose to obey him, but I'll do it in a time where no one's going to be able to notice. I'm going to do it at night. And specifically, we're told that Gideon was afraid of his father, what his father might say, what his father might do, and afraid of the people of the men of the town of his peers in the town, what they might do to him, what they might say about him. So because of that, Gideon chooses this courage middle ground where he says, okay, I'll do it, but I'm going to do it at night. I'll be a person of faith, but I'll keep my faith private. I'll be different at night when no one sees me. And so he chooses this type of courage middle ground. You see this lack of courage that I think all of us can relate to. Let's be real. Let's not pick on Gideon. Underneath this lack of courage is that we are often more afraid of others than we are confident in the Lord. 
We're more afraid of what others might say or do than we are confident in God's calling on our life. Look at verse 23 for a moment. This was a part of Gideon's calling. God came to Gideon in this dramatic fashion. I mean, Gideon had just that very night had an encounter with the angel of the Lord. And here's what the angel said to him. Listen to this, verse 23. He says, but the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And then hours later, Gideon's afraid. Probably afraid for his life. And God had told him, do not fear. You will not die. It's a promise from God. And it was so dramatic. It was so clearly God speaking to him. I mean, it was an unforgettable experience for Gideon. And yet he still deals with fear. You see, we struggle with courage. We struggle with having this sense of standing up and rising above our fears to be obedient to the Lord, to trust him. And if you think of how this story is playing out, again, Gideon is going to be the judge, the one who rescues God's people from this oppressing nation that's coming and plundering them. But here's the question. How is Gideon going to deliver God's people and fulfill his great purpose that God has on his life? How is he going to do that and stand on that battleground if he's not willing to stand on the battleground of his own home? See, sometimes... I get frustrated with God, or maybe you've been frustrated with God, or you feel like you're stuck. Sometimes we have this sense where like, God, I feel like I'm stuck. Like I, I, I have these desires, and I, I feel like where I'm currently at is not where I'm supposed to fully be, and there's more for me, and we feel stuck, and we feel like we can't make any progress. But maybe, just maybe, before God would release us to whatever may come, and mind you, it may be being faithful right where you're at, where you might feel stuck. But perhaps before God releases you to that place where you get unstuck and you move forward in the purpose he has and the calling he has on your life, perhaps God is calling you to learn courage right here. See, Gideon had to learn this lesson of courage and God has a special plan to see to it that Gideon learns from this moment. That he learns from this failed attempt at courage to become a person of courage himself. You know, when I think of all the times where I've had halfway courage, compromised courage, it's really an imposter on the outside. You know, you can like feel good about yourself. Yeah, I did that. But deep down, you know, it was kind of just this compromise. It's, it's a fake. It's a counterfeit. If, if halfway courage or compromised courage was a food, it would be turkey bacon. You know what I'm talking about? It looks like bacon. It somewhat smells like bacon. Uh, and, and then you take a bite of it and then you're just offended. You're just offended. And you, and you know, you see deep down, it's not the same thing. God will not allow us. He'll see to it in Gideon's life that Gideon is on the path of courage. That God brings about circumstances that's going to put Gideon's lack of courage to a deeper test. Look at what happens next. This is God's path to courage. Verse 28. Here's how the story unfolds. It says, When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. <clears throat> 
And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then look at what they say next. It says, then the men of the town said to Joash, Gideon's father, they say to Joash, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. This is exactly what Gideon was trying to avoid. The story unfolds. The men of the town wake up the next morning, presumably to go and offer a sacrifice to Baal so they could earn off the land because they believe that Baal had some power to make them wealthy, make them uh, prosper. And they go over to Joash's land where the altar is set up and they notice that it's torn down. They do some investigating, run some fingerprints, call CSI. They come out, check it out. And after inquiring throughout all the town, they find out it was Joash's own son. It was Gideon that did it. Now what we gather from this is that Gideon's father, Joash, he must have had some really important role in the town. He must have been very well respected in the town because this altar was set up on his land and the town really centered around the altar that was set up on Joash's land. And so they go to Joash and they say, bring your son out. This mob of people, this angry group of people see this altar torn down and here's what they see torn down. Think about it. They see their crops torn down. They see their power, their wealth, their prosperity, their future torn down. And they are incensed. They are angry. So they go to Joash demanding the life of his son. Think about the, the evil of this moment. These people who are worshiping idols are now calling for the execution of a man who did something that was the right thing to do. To tear down an idol. His lack of courage aside... According to God's law, this was the right thing to do, to tear down this idol. And here's this mob, this angry mob calling for his life. And we have to ask the question, what's Joash going to do? I mean, it's on his land. Clearly, he has some measure of devotion to Baal. What is Joash going to do? He, this is his son Gideon. We, find out early, we found out earlier in this chapter that Gideon feels like he's the least of his family. He feels like he's the least. Maybe something has happened in his life where he feels like his dad doesn't even care. Who, who knows? What is Joash going to do? Look at what happens next. Picking it up in verse 31. It says, But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for Baal shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, speaking of Baal, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubel. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. So Joash, the father, he says to this angry mob of people and says, listen, let Baal, let this God fight for himself. If Baal wants to kill Gideon and take him out for what he's done to his altar, let Baal contend for himself. But if you, angry mob of people, take matters into your own hands and you contend for Baal, you fight for Baal and kill my son, well then your blood is going to be on your hands. You will lose your life. So Joash, he's a difficult character to fully understand. On the one hand, it sounds like he's defending his son, 
But at the same time, we know clearly Joash has some measure of devotion to Baal and to Asherah. And so he's literally saying, hey, uh, let Baal contend against him. He gives his son, he calls him Jerubal, which is ironic. It's this name that means let Baal come get him. Let Baal come fight against him. It's like Joash gives Gideon a sign that says, hey, Baal, if you want to, if you'd like to, come get me. So Gideon has this target on his back. And every single day that Gideon remains alive, and as the story unfolds, Gideon remains alive for quite some time. And he goes on to battle against the Midianites and bring victory to God's people. He goes on to do those things. But every day, this Jerubal, Gideon, whose name means let Baal contend against him, is this indictment on the powerlessness of Baal. And how the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one true living God who can truly deliver his people. And so in this passage, the way it unfolds, we really do see God's path to courage. God's path to courage all throughout the Bible is kind of uh, put in this microcosm right here in Judges chapter 6. The way God develops courage in his people is by delivering his people from death to life. That's how God does it. He walks with us from death to life. He brings us to moment where all we know to do is offer desperate prayers. He brings us to moments where maybe our life flashes before our eyes and we say to God things like this, God, if you don't show up right now, I don't know how I can move on. God, I, I, I'm, I've exhausted all my options. I don't know what to do anymore. I, I feel lost and alone. And unless you show up and come through, God, I have no shot. And God, bringing us to these desperate moments, in him doing that, God is putting us in a place that is precisely where he wants us to be. Where all that we have, with all of our little strength, all that we can do is say, God, I am just utterly in your hands. You are all I have. If only you will come through. And it's in that place that we are set up for the miracle. It's in that place, being in death, of being in that place of suffering and being in that place of hopelessness, of seeing our life flash before our eyes, of seeing an angry mob come for you, demanding your life. It's in that place that the resurrection is coming. See, this is how God works and operates. It's how he's always operated among his people. This didn't just happen in Gideon's life. This also happened in Jacob's life. One of Gideon's forefathers. Gideon, uh, Jacob... The person whom the nation of Israel is named after, Jacob was on his way to meet up with Esau, his brother. And Jacob's completely terrified of this encounter that's about to take place. He's, he's terrified of what's going to happen because he's tricked his brother and he's messed with his brother. And he, he anticipates that Esau's not going to be happy with him. And so while he's on his way to meet up with his brother, God interrupts him. And in the midst of Jacob's fear, God shows up in one of the, the strangest passages in all the Bible. God shows up and wrestles with Jacob all night long, like hand-to-hand -hand combat with God. And Jacob wrestles with God all night long, and at the end of the night, he realizes who it is he's been wrestling with. And after he wrestles with God and has this encounter and asks him for a blessing, and God gives him a limp, puts a mark 
Gives them this limp, this mark of his presence with them, this mark of this encounter he had with them. And God changes Jacob's name to Israel. But here's what Jacob does in response to that moment. He calls that place where he met with God, where he wrestled with God, Peniel, which means the face of God. And Jacob said this, he said, because I have seen the face of God and my life was delivered. I have seen the face of the Almighty, the Creator, and I was delivered from death to life, and I'm alive. I went hand-to-hand combat with Almighty God, and I'm still walking. And so Jacob goes on to meet with his brother Esau after he had been delivered from death to life in his encounter with the Lord. So now he can go and face Esau because he just met with the Almighty. See, God does this. He does this in the life of Moses. Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household. I mean, Moses would have experienced luxuries that for that time, I mean, many of his own people, the Hebrews, couldn't even imagine of the kind of luxuries Moses would have experienced. Well, one day Moses saw an Egyptian abusing one of his Hebrew brothers. And so Moses strikes him and kills this Egyptian. Word starts to spread and Moses freaks out knowing that Pharaoh, Pharaoh's going to find out what took place, that he just killed an Egyptian. Moses starts fleeing for his life, realizing that his life is going to be taken away from him if Pharaoh gets to him. So Moses flees out into the wilderness. This person who grew up in Pharaoh's household, marked by prosperity and wealth. Now he's in the wilderness, homeless, alone, and unsure of where his next meal will come from. He flees. And years later, God meets with Moses. He shows up in Moses' life. And God calls Moses through this burning bush. This bush that is full of a fire. It's this large tree that's full of fire. It's flaming. And at the same time, it's not being consumed. Its life is being preserved. It's this picture of what God always does. He delivers us from death to life. And so before Moses can go and face Pharaoh as the one that God is going to call to say, let my people go, to stand before the most powerful man in all of the world at that time, God prepares Moses to face Pharaoh and say, let my people go by delivering him from death to life. See, this is what happens in the life of David. That famous King David who slayed the giant Goliath, the reason he stood before Goliath with confidence, David tells it himself. David says, God delivered me from lions and bears while I was tending my sheep. He delivered my life then, he'll deliver my life now. And he defeats the giant Goliath. And then after Goliath, we find out there's another enemy that wants David dead. It's King Saul, this jealous king who feels threatened by David. And so many of the Psalms are authored, this book of the Bible full of prayers, authored by King David. As he's on the run for his life, as King Saul wants him dead. And he finds himself in caves, and he finds himself in the wilderness, running and fleeing for his life. And on multiple occasions, in a miraculous fashion, God delivers David's life. He goes from death, to life, so that he could stand as king one day, having walked with God from death to life, having walked with God through the valley of the shadow of death, and concluded on the other side, goodness and mercy has gone with me all the days of my life. 
You see, this is the path of courage that God takes us through because this is the path of courage that God himself took. See, when God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, when God came to us to lead a greater deliverance than the one that Gideon was going to lead God's people through from the nation of Midian. Jesus came as a greater judge, a greater deliverer. And Jesus, like Gideon, had this angry mob of people calling for his life to be taken away from him. This angry, vicious mob full of just rage, calling for his life to be taken away, calling for his death. And then like Joash... There's this crowd of people surrounding Jesus while he's on the cross. Though Jesus is blameless. Though he's done nothing wrong. Jesus is hanging on a cross. And a crowd of people starts mocking and jeering. Just like Joash says saying, hey, if you are the son of God, you contend for yourself. If you're the king of kings, if you're the king of the Jews, then you save yourself. You saved others. Let's see if you really are the one. And then what happened? Maybe... Something unexpected that the disciples of Jesus didn't fully understand at first. Jesus, in that moment, he doesn't save himself. He doesn't contend for himself. He gives up his life. He dies. A stone is rolled over a tomb where his body is laid. And this tomb is just complete darkness with the dead body of the Lord Jesus laying in it. And it's almost like that moment in a movie where a director fades the story to black at the end of the movie. And it feels like the last scene has just taken place. And you're sitting there watching and you're thinking, this can't be it. Is this over? Is it all done? All, all the buildup and this is how this ends and the screen remains black for some time. And so you're grabbing your popcorn and your gummy bears and your soda and you're getting your things together to get up and just as you're starting to leave your seat, light emerges on that dark screen and you realize, oh, there's more, it's not over and as that stone gets rolled away and light pierces through that dark cave of a tomb, out emerges the Lord Jesus, the hero, the greater deliverer than Gideon who steps out having come out on the other side of death. God did indeed contend for himself. He did indeed deliver us from death. And the way that he did it through Jesus is he brought us along with him. See, Jesus took the path from death to life. This is what it looks like to be a person of faith and courage. To walk with God through the valley. To walk with God trusting in his promise. Trusting in his word. And so I, I just, I, in so many ways, I, I can hear the voice of so many people I've talked to in our church. People that I know from our community who are hurting right now. People who are confused. Who have such real fears. Fears beyond maybe what he, I can comprehend. And you might be just asking the question, Justin, that, that sounds wonderful about what Jesus did, but what does that have to do with the fact that I am, I'm really scared right now about what, what I'm going to do with my career. I feel like I've lost everything. I'm really scared right now, but what's going to happen in my family? I feel like my marriage is, is falling apart. God, I, I feel like I'm in this place where I don't know what happens next. I'm afraid. Maybe you're in the place of fear and you're just wondering, that, that's great that Gideon did that and the 
Moses did that. And Jesus, what does that have to do with me? I want to show you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Here's what this says. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You say, what does what Jesus did have to do with my fears right now, with my life right now? I say everything. See, because Jesus on that cross in that moment did indeed give his life. Though he could have saved himself and called legions of angels to come and wreck everyone who was mocking him and jeering at him. The fact that Jesus remained on that cross, paid the punishment for our sin, and then was buried in a tomb, and three days later rose from the grave. Now God can say that God has made us alive together with Jesus. That we have been included in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Notice the language in Ephesians 2. It says he made us alive with Jesus. What does that mean? That means in a sense that God, when Jesus rose from the dead, he made us alive. Us, like me, Justin Chades, who lives 2,000 years after these events. God made Justin Chades alive together with Christ. Maybe even say that out loud about your own name. God made you. You, yes, you. He made you alive with Jesus and he seated you with Jesus in the heavenly places, in the place of favor, in the place of honor. We're included in the victory that Jesus has secured for us. So what does this have to do? Everything. See, Jesus has made a way so that his victory is now shared with us. He's gone through the ultimate death and was delivered from that death. So that now, just like Jacob if we've been delivered from this encounter with God and we've come out the other side marked by his grace and mercy, then what else can we come up against that will knock us down? You know, sometimes when it comes to courage, people think that the solution is to just stop thinking about it so much. In fact, there are oftentimes there are vices we turn to when we're afraid, when we feel anxious, that we think that if I just numb my senses and reduce my ability to think about it, I'll feel better and maybe I'll even be more courageous. But for the Christian, our calling to courage is actually a calling to think more, not less. Think about who Jesus is. Think about what he's done for you. Listen to this. This is Psalm 118 verses 5 through 6. Psalm 118. He says this. Out of my distress... In my desperation, in this place of hopelessness, I called on the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. Then listen to what he reasons from this. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. Oh, those are some good verses to memorize if you're dealing with fear. If you need some courage, this person, this writer calls out to God in their distress, in that place of desperation. Calls out to God and God speaks. He answers. He responds. We have God's response in his word. And this 
writer concludes, God is on my side. And if he's on my side, I'm not going to fear. And I'm just going to ask the question, what can man do to me if God is on my side? If God is for me, who can be against me? Think. Think about what God has done for us in Christ. John chapter 16, verse 33. Hear the words of Jesus. He says this to his disciples. He says this. He says, I've said these things to you, my followers, that in me, in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. It's a guarantee. You will have troubles. But take heart. I have overcome the world. You see, we live in our small little worlds. And each of us have these battles that in the grand scheme of things, they're really big to us. But in the grand scheme of all of human history, our battles are small. Our world is small compared to the larger world. And Jesus says, I've overcome the cosmos. I've overcome the world and its forces of darkness. I've overcome death itself. I've already overcome. So take courage. Take heart. In me you may have peace. And so my word to you who are struggling, who are fearful right now, is to think deeply about your Savior, to pray desperate prayers, to think about what he's done, how he's already delivered you from the greatest enemy. What can man do to you? Jesus has offered you his peace right there in the midst of tribulation. Church, God is calling us to be a people of peace and to be a people of courage in the midst of an era where everyone around us, it seems, is full of anxiety and doubt, full of fear and discouragement. You see, when faith and fear are coupled, when faith and courage are coupled together, we take faith, this trust in God, this confidence in his word, and we take that and accelerate it to courage where we believe God's promise more than we are scared of the lies of the people around us or the threat of the people around us or our circumstances. When we take faith and courage and we bring them together, truly we can be the people God has called us to be here in this city. As we don't want to settle for a compromised form of courage, a privatized form of faith. No, we, we want to be a bold and courageous people that lifts up the, the name of Jesus here in our city. That he might be lifted up. That God might do something incredible through us. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you love us, that you care for us. I pray that indeed we would become a people of courage. Lord, I pray right now for those who are walking through a a moment, a season where they are afraid, full of fear on every side. Lord, I pray that you would be our shield, that you would be our refuge, that you would be our strength. Father, would you come through, walk us through to the other side and make us into people of courage. May we think deeply about Jesus, the one we follow. And Lord, I pray for those who are listening who don't have a relationship with you. God, for those who who may be listening because someone invited them to listen, but they've never trusted in you as their Savior. Lord, would you right now just help them to see and to hear the incredible grace that you have towards them in Jesus. And I pray right now that they would trust in you, that right now would be their moment of faith where they believe and they receive that what Jesus did on the cross counted for them. 
that Jesus was made alive and they were made alive together with Jesus. And that Jesus delivered them from their greatest enemy, sin and death. Father, would right now be the moment of faith for many where they cross over from spiritual death to eternal life. We love you, Jesus. We pray this all in your name. Amen. If that was a decision that you made just now to put your faith in Jesus, there's a place that you can click that says, I'm I'm raising my hand. I want to put my trust in Jesus. And here's what I want to just encourage you to do, to exhort you to do. That is the greatest decision you could ever make in your entire life. I want to encourage you to go to cityrev.org slash faith. At the conclusion of the service or open up another tab, go to cityrev.org slash faith right now. There's a very brief form and here's what we're going to do. We just want to send you a Bible, a free Bible. We want to equip you with God's word. We want to connect with you and share with you what it looks like to be on this journey of following Jesus. Now we're going to continue our service here in a moment where we continue to worship God through song. And so wherever you're at, wherever you're listening, watching, I want to invite you to prepare your heart to sing to praise God through song. And so let's go ahead and worship God together. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.